this is Lindsay Jacobs, your host, and welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Each episode, I have a new guest and we explore a topic that's relevant to Jero Psychology. In today's episode, Dr. Michelle Malinak joins me to share her expertise in home-based primary care, which is a setting where geropsychologists work with an interdisciplinary care team to provide home-based care to older adults. Dr. Michelle Malinak is a staff psychologist at VA Boston Healthcare System, and she's also an assistant professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For the past 10 years, Dr. Malinak, or Michelle as I'll refer to her, has worked in home-based primary care at VA Boston, providing clinical services to homebound older veterans and their families. She supervises graduate students, interns, and fellows in geropsychology practice. Michelle is also a board-certified clinical geropsychologist and serves on the executive board of the American Board of Geropsychology. Her research has been in the areas of decision-making capacity, integrated care, and geropsychology training. You might notice that in today's episode, Dr. Michelle Malinak and I refer to clients as patients or veterans, and she and I use the term veteran quite naturally because we have both trained and have worked in the VA setting. I do want to note, however, that the views expressed during today's podcast are our own and do not represent the views of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the U.S. government. Okay, so thank you so much for being on, Michelle. My pleasure, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. First, we'll get started off by just talking about how you got interested in geropsychology or more broadly, how you got interested in working with older adults. Oh, thank you. Well, I am... I think I probably would trace it back to my grandmother, who lived in, in her mid-90s and um, was very active into her late life. Wow. She played in a bocce league every week up until <laughs> pretty close to the end. Aww. And uh, she manned the voting, the voting booths and everything like that, so she was pretty active. Um, and her friends used to call her Smiling Annie. So, Aww. <laughs> um, so she would probably be one, you know, part of that. And then when I went to graduate school at Xavier University in Cincinnati, their focus as a Jesuit university was on the underserved um, communities. So when you got there... You were sort of, you know, invited to choose to work with older adults or children or people with severe mental illness, and I chose older adults. And I had a wonderful mentor there, Suzanne Norman, and she connected me with uh, very exciting projects, and I got to work on my dissertation with her, and it was great. Oh, so awesome. I was sold from from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know in just talking with people in the Jero community that um, for a lot of us, one of the things that really prompted us or drew us to Jero psychology is sort of a personal experience, mm-hmm. you know, um, knowing, you know, having a loved one or a friend or uh, an older. Um, yeah, having an older person in your life, I think, was really is really important to um, a lot of us who chose this path mm-hmm. in our careers. Yeah, I had a really similar experience. My um, 
I spent a lot of time growing up with my grandparents. Mm. Every weekend I would visit with them. Um, and also my great-grandmother. Uh, I spent a lot of my summers with my great-grandmother. And she was really active as well. She actually volunteered in nursing homes. Wow. And I... I even I still remember um, going with her a couple of times to um, to meet some of the residents that she would sit with. That's a, that's really neat. Yeah, that's really neat. So you really got it sort of double barreled there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, one thing that I wanted to mention to the audience that I don't think anybody knows is Michelle, you were actually really instrumental in the start of this podcast. <laughs> Was I? Tell me more, Lindsay. Um, I remember it was last year um, we were talking about podcasts, and I had mentioned how for several years now I'd been um, looking for a podcast on geropsychology. There's, you know, a number of podcasts out there on specific topics in geriatrics, but nothing, and there's also podcasts on on psychology in general, but nothing specifically on geropsychology. And I remember you said, you should do that, Lindsay. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> so because of that, that sort of put that planted that seed in my brain and um and here we are today here we are today no I think it's I mean I think we have a lot of um we're all doing a lot of very interesting cool scientific and um fruitful things that it it would be great to hear from the community collectively yeah and also I spend a lot of time in my car as we will talk about so (laughs) having a geropsychology podcast adding it to my repertoire is wonderful Um, so you're here today to talk to us about what it's like to work in home-based primary care. And I imagine that this topic would be of interest to students, um, trainees who are, you know, just interested in learning about what a typical day looks like in home-based primary care, the different skills um, that you use in home-based primary care, what that experience is like as they're thinking about what to do when they graduate. And there, traditionally, for the past uh, 10 years or so, there have been jobs in home-based primary care, at least within the VA, and, and people are doing cool things outside of the VA around in home care with this population of older adults. Mm-hmm. And so um, I find it a thrilling job, and yeah. I am glad if others want to come and do this work. Well, um, why don't we just start off by discussing what home-based primary care is? Sure. So home-based primary care is really an interdisciplinary model of geriatric care. And how it looks within VA um, is maybe a little bit different from how it looks in community settings, but they're very similar. And it's really the aim is to help older adults who have multiple chronic conditions who generally are homebound for um, functional reasons, um, helping it, it sort of helps man sort of manage their care, but also to minimize hospitalizations, frequent trips to the emergency room for these chronic conditions. Um, and this population um, often has mental health needs as well that as psychologists, as geropsychologists, as health psychologists, we are very well equipped to address. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, in home-based primary care, you're serving those patients with complex care needs. Um, 
What are the typical demographic characteristics, you know, more specifically of those patients that you see? Sure. And so for our team, our average age of our patients is about 85. Um, so generally they're in their later life, but not all. Some, so we have some younger folks who have maybe early onset dementias or, or things like ALS, other things like that. Generally, they're people in late life who have been coping with, you know, a lot of medical illnesses. Um, and so it really helps that for them to have the view of an interdisciplinary team coming to the home. And so our team consists of, in addition to their primary care provider, and that could be a physician or a nurse practitioner, um, they also have a nurse who really is sort of guiding the care, is their sort of care manager and is seeing them probably more frequently than most anybody else on the team. Um, we also have social workers who are crucial in helping address the multiple complex uh, psychosocial needs that, that these folks often have, whether that's being at risk of having to move to a higher level of care, whether that is assisted living or a nursing home or moving in with one of their children, things like that, um, or just having low financial resources or other complicated psychosocial circumstances. We have pharmacists um, who address the often very complex medication re regimens that these um, patients that we serve may may have. We have dietitians to address nutritional needs, and we have psychologists. We also have physical and occupational therapists who work with our team as well, mm -hmm. um, who can you know provide equipment and um, make address home safety issues and other things to really keep the um, veterans, we serve veterans, keep the veterans at home as long as they, as we can, and yeah. which is what they generally want. Yeah. Yeah. I So this really is a job that is ideal for geropsychologists because of the population that you serve and to that interdisciplinary care aspect of it. That's right. And I would say um, often we're wearing multiple hats. So I, I have my geropsychologist hat and I also have some, some background and training in health psychology, which is really crucial in um, navigating the sort of complex interdisciplinary team environment and, and dealing with complex complexities in the medical um, in the medical issues that patients are dealing with. So we're and also we're their primary care psychologist in a way. So we're sometimes we're doing quick little bursts of CBT around issues like medication adherence or mm. quitting smoking, things like that. Yeah. And also we're generalists because <laughs> lots of issues come up, uh, come up that um, require the use of a psychologist. So, yeah. Yeah. And the nurse is sort of like the hub or the main person. To, so the nurse sees everyone. The nurse sees everyone. We sort of talk about the nurse and, and to a lesser extent, the social worker is sort of being the entree that mm -hmm. sort of they're seeing everybody. And then the rest of us um, are sort of add-ons. Um, primary care, I guess, is part of that entree for, for most people. Mm -hmm. um, although some of our patients do come in into the outpatient clinic if they have been with their primary care providers in the clinic forever. And then we'll just support that team. Oh, in, that's in nice. So, I mean, it really is tailored to whatever the patient needs. We do try to, ta to tailor it. Yeah. 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 Although I think, by and large, the, the pushes to across the country is to really have the whole comprehensive in-home care team, including yeah. the primary care provider. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so after the nurse sees the patient, how do you all um, decide who you see as the home-based primary care psychologist? That's a uh, good question, and I think teams do it differently, different ways across the country, and I should say that, that home-based primary care is in nearly, I think, all VAs across the country, so um, we're serving a lot of patients in both urban and rural areas. And so um, 
for us, we sort of crafted it that we are independent providers. And so what we're often doing is screening for things like depression, post-traumatic stress, cognitive impairment um, upfront. So the nurse or the social worker may do those kinds of brief screens and, and then triage who then should come to see the psychologist. And we talk about patients and I review charts of, of people sort of as they're coming aboard. And if it looks <laughs> mm-hmm. from what I'm seeing in the, collectively, um, then it makes sense that they may need some mental health support or if they need caregiver support, then I will offer that. Yeah. Offer that to them. Oh, I, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that home-based primary care is offered throughout the VA. I'm curious about how home-based primary care developed or sort of VA's role in that. So VA, as as my understanding is that it actually has been in VA for quite a while, but really in the last 10 years or so, (laughs) um, there has been a push to add um, mental health providers, integrated mental health providers, which who by and large are psychologists, but some psychiatrists as well, adding adding, um, that group of folks to the interdisciplinary care team. And I think that's made such a um, big change for patients. I think having that in-home mental health support has been critical for the care of the of the patients and their families and also to support the team and, and to provide that truly integrated interdisciplinary care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- I imagine that it just really improves access to mental health care for those patients where you know, coming into an outpatient clinic might be more difficult. Yeah, and some of some of our patients have been in going to outpatient uh, therapy or or to see a psychologist for years, and then they it becomes too challenging to do that. And so it's nice to for the outpatient providers, I think, to be able to hand off the care mm-hmm. um, to us as mental health providers. But there's also people who never would have gone into outpatient mental health treatment for whether that's stigma reasons or um, they just they didn't think that was something that they wanted to try and and this offers us a, a more um in you know personal opportunity to offer our services face to face i always like to you know look, help, let me come out i'm i'm the i'm a nice psychologist let's talk about what might be going on and if it's not for you that's great that's yeah. fine but maybe it is and maybe we can um treat some things that have been untreated for for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the stigma piece, I, I could see that, you know, definitely home-based primary care psychology definitely helping reduce the stigma in that way. Another, I think, nice role for the team, too, is is it, we, are, as psychologists, are, as geropsychologists, are really well positioned to help the team understand what may be normal aging, quote-unquote normal aging, versus where there is there are untreated mental health, mental health issues that we can help to address. And mm-hmm. and maybe that's not necessarily going the route of psychotherapy. Maybe that's going towards medication. Maybe that's going towards other kinds of strategies like behavioral activation or connecting them with things like adult day health care or other sorts of supports. But often we're providing a, a really great lens into understanding what people may have just attributed to oh that's just what he's like as he gets older that's what just what Mm. that's just what happens when you get old you start to forget or you start to be down who wouldn't be down you know we've heard those things before so we have an opportunity to use our skills in decreasing ageism yeah i'm curious what does home-based primary care look like in the private sector sure well having not actually been in the private sector take that with a grain of salt but um there are different kinds of models and i think often they are use have social workers on the team or psychiatrists to address similar sorts of issues and i think the reimbursement may be different and i 
I would encourage people who are interested in in working outside um, VA in home-based primary care to um, look up the Home Centered Care Institute, which has a lot of great resources around this kind of work. Okay, great. And it's my understanding, too, that you are working on a book talking about home-based primary care. I am co-editing a book along with um, uh, two other home-based primary care psychologists. But um, our focus is on how do you provide mental health services to this very complex population Mm -hmm. of often frail older adults in their home? What does that even look like? We're really sort of, in a way, in uncharted territory (laughs) um, as far as mental health provision for this um, group of folks. Is so that is going to be coming out hopefully um, sometime in 2020. But I will keep you posted. So exciting! <laughs> it should be fun. I think we're really trying to draw on the wisdom of the community, both within VA and outside VA, of psychologists, psychiatry, social work mm-hmm. to um, provide some real practical advice about how one might get started in this area. Oh, do wow. this kind of work in many aspects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's going to be a great resource. I hope so. I hope so. I think there's a lot of things that maybe look so much different than if you're providing outpatient or inpatient care in terms of home safety and safety of yourself as a as a psychologist, um, boundary setting, using the home environment to sort of inform your care, mm-hmm. inform your mental health care, and how can you capitalize on providing in-home services to really promote the mental health of the person that you're working with. Yeah. Well, you you talked a little bit about your role as a psychologist uh, on the team. So providing care to patients and family members, I imagine, caregivers um, as well, and also being a team member in the interdisciplinary team. What does a typical day look like for you? It's uh, very exciting. So I may start the day first going to pick up my um, car at the VA, so swapping out the keys. Um, and that takes a little time. And if it's snowing, <laughs> I have to <laughs> do some cleaning off of the car or shoveling out, making sure there's enough gas in there, etc. cetera. Um, you have to have a, lo- a high um, level of flexibility and patience for logistics. I think in this role <laughs> is another, another thing we quickly learn. Um, and then I may go see two or three folks at home, whether that's doing some caregiver support or individual psychotherapy, things like problem solving training or cognitive behavioral therapy for depression or um, another piece of, of the interventions that home-based psychologists provide is case management. That really goes, par, you know, sort of part mm. and parcel with all this work. Everybody on the team is doing case management. Yeah. So we may do therapy for 45 minutes and then the next 15 minutes I'm making sure that they, you know, did, did the home health aid come today or do we have to problem solve around that? Did you get your laundry done today or should I be calling, you know, your daughter because maybe you forgot that or the person didn't come Mm -hmm. or problem solver on tech issues, real basic tech tech issues maybe to us. Um, But it's important for people to be able to use their phones, their mobile phone, um, their laptops, et cetera. um, Yeah. Population and and things that maybe a two second fix for me may take them a little more time to problem solve. So Mm -hmm. those are additional meaningful pieces of, of my role. After seeing patients, um, um, I often will do some curbside consults, as we call them, with other providers on the team. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll get a call from one of the nurses who is stuck on a patient issue and want to just, I'll, maybe it's somebody I'll never see, but just to help them sort of talk through what the issues are, what they saw, and how to triage whatever was coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, like Mr. Mr. Jones didn't look quite right today, so I'm not sure what I'm looking at. Should I be, you know, calling his provider or is this normal for 
whatever his mental health background is, etc. Yeah. We do a fair amount of training of, of psychology students. So that's practicum students, interns and fellows. And that may be a piece of my day is taking one of them out on the road with me as well and doing some supervision. Mm-hmm. And um, things, other kinds of exciting creative things. Um, we just started a, another round of our telephone um, caregiver support group. Oh, so that's wow. usually four or five caregivers on the phone. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's really lovely when they can connect with each other. Mm-hmm. So it, it I'm using a lot of different skills. And then we may have a team meeting that day where we're getting together and going through the issues of each patient. We may be working on quality improvement projects or other types of research projects that we have going on. Mm-hmm. What are the differences between doing psychotherapy in the home versus in like an outpatient clinic? Sure. So I think... There are, there are a lot of changes in terms of what does it look like when you just even arrive to the home um, and how do you sort of think about what your psychotherapy framework is. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking back to grad school about the, the psychotherapy framework, is it maybe I'm doing psychotherapy where the person's sitting, lying in bed and I'm standing up because there's maybe not a, an available chair for me to sit on in the home and what? how do you think about what are really the important ingredients in psychotherapy and how can I make sure I'm delivering those real active ingredients in a way that there's is not mm-hmm. originally how how these evidence-based psychotherapies were designed, right? But yeah. we're, we're trying to figure out how to adapt to the population that we're serving. Mm. It may be that we're using, that I'm noticing the person's service medals or other things. Often in our patient's home, there's a little sort of sanctuary, you might say, or or station where where they have their, their service medals framed or other sorts of important memorabilia from their lives or their grandchildren's photos and really acknowledging that and using the home environment in a in a sort of human way, but also there are many ways that you can use that to support the interventions that you're delivering. Yeah. You know, I have, uh, you know, we live in Boston, right? So several of my patients had, had run the Boston Marathon years ago. And so maybe that is noticing that they're watching the marathon when I get there and talking about using that as a as a way to talk about their experiences or seeing their race medal. Um, and maybe they were running all those years because they had pretty bad PTSD, but the running was a way to help them cope. And now they're not running. They can't run like that anymore. So what are they doing instead to help mm-hmm. them cope? This makes me think back on uh, whenever I was in graduate school, we had home-based psychotherapy. Um, It wasn't part of a primary care team, but I remember one particular patient that I I worked with, a client that I worked with, she had played piano in her younger years, and she absolutely loved it. But she hadn't been able to play in a long time because her osteoarthritis was really, was pretty severe. She had a lot of pain. But in her mind, she was thinking about, you know, I have to, if I were to sit and play the piano now, I would have to do it exactly like I did it when I was 30 or 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking back on one particular session that we had where uh, it was really all about sort of setting it up so that she could play a little bit. And she actually played during our wow. uh, during our session. It was wow. so amazing. I mean, that's what more do you want, really, right? I yeah. Mean, that's, that's really meeting goals in the moment and being very patient-centered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how often do you see patients? I mean, that I think that depends. Sometimes I may just be seeing them once for a an initial assessment or a capacity evaluation or some brief cognitive testing, 
things like that. Um, maybe I'm doing something more structured. If I'm doing problem solving therapy, then I will usually see them once a week for six weeks at least, and then taper, taper down or taper off. And then there's some people who may have more chronic ongoing needs where I'm not seeing them that frequently, but it actually, we've built a rapport over the years and I'm sort of there for, for the future. Yeah. <laughs> for when things change, I know, you know, we've already established a rapport together. So that puts me in a more advantageous place to then come back in later and address things when they may start to get worse for the person. It sounds like it's really flexible. It's, it is really flexible. And we have the luxury of being able to sort of design our own days. <laughs> and maybe my day is changing. We talked about what's the perfect day or what's an ideal day or <laughs> just mm-hmm. a typical day. Yeah. And often that may be changing on the fly. I think another part of of working with this population is that they do they are sick, you know, sick often, physically sick. And so they may end up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it never hurts to check before you leave to go to their home to make sure they're actually in the home. Oh, yeah. So, or they're at an appointment or whatever. <laughs> so there's a lot of flexibility, as I said. That's yeah. really key. Yeah. <laughs> really key. Yeah. Home care is so different from from outpatient, where I have been working for a good while now. What is it like, or sort of how do you how do you negotiate with your patient whenever you are you know providing maybe a structured psychotherapy and you have pe- other people in the home or people coming by? What is that like? Um, I it's sort of the par for the course for the most part. So often I will talk about it with the patient and take the cues from them. Often I. I'm introduced as the nurse or or this is my friend from the VA or some something else and that you know that they know that that's not who I am but but sort of saving face and protecting the relationship I think is important to them and so I try to go off of how they're feeling about it and some of them are very excited to have Dr. Malinic come to the house you know yeah um, and we'll tell other people about it and in fact you know we've had people over the years who've like engaged their friends in in psychotherapy etc because <laughs> they you know again we're sort of like the face of the VA coming to their homes yeah um, and so that's that's been really neat yeah um, but I think you really have to think about what are the boundaries and if somebody walks in, you may not be able to finish the session that day. You may not be able to get to all the content that you wanted. So um, you just kind of roll with it, really. And you mentioned assessment. I'm curious what capacity assessment looks like in home-based primary care. What sorts of things come up? Sure. Um, and it it may be that you are the one seeing them in, in the home. And so you're noticing things and you may be the one asking your own question to yourself um, or to, some, to the other another mental health provider psychologist on your team to say you know I think uh, I saw him get the mail I saw her get the mail today and there was a lot of scams and you know in there from what uh, she showed me and so I'm concerned that that you know a lot of the money that she's sending out is going to people who um, are not reputable Mm -hmm. so in other words you may be identifying your own capacity evaluation question and it could be that you're asking several at once it may be independent living how capable what is this person's ability to be able to remain living in their home? And that certainly comes up also around medical decision making or being able to participate in their care planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at this point, they're dealing with a lot of complex chronic health issues, and it's important for them to be able to sort of work with their provider and their and their caregiver or family to guide their treatment. And if if they're not able to do that, then then what does the team do? How can I help inform mm-hmm. the team about the next 
next steps. Yeah. What is the role of the other team members or disciplines in um, thinking about a person's ability to live independently or maybe another capacity domain? Oh, sure. I think that the team is really informing the whole picture, right? It's often something we're discussing over time where maybe I'm not doing a capacity evaluation for a year or so after we've kind of worked through the the things that we can offer and the services that we can put into place, the equipment that we can put in the home, putting in all the all the supports that we can to really bolster a person's capacity if it's for independent living or for medical decision making or financial capacity. And so then what we're doing when it's when it comes time to do a capacity evaluation is thinking about well our what is the dietitian saying about their ability to feed themselves or mm-hmm. or to provide for their own nutritional needs? What does the social worker think about? Can we add more resources or services? Is there we, we work pretty closely with them around thinking about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, medically, what does the prognosis look like for this person? How are they doing functionally? Maybe they could stand to have some brief focused physical therapy from a visiting nurse agency, and maybe that will help booster bolster capacity. So we're is a constant, I think, dialogue. And often that's what our interdisciplinary team meetings are there to help us sort of chew through. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it can be challenging. And, you know, we have different levels of risk tolerance as well. And I think my team has been together for quite a while and we may have a higher risk tolerance. (laughs) You know, we know that our often our patients' goals are to remain at home. And so maybe we're, we're erring more on the side of that happening than others who don't know them as well may see the risks more clearly and, and strongly than than the patient does. Yeah. So it can really be, um, we know, I think, our own abilities as a team as well in, mm-hmm. in terms of being able to marshal the resources to help the person age in place. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned uh, a caregiver telephone group. Sure. I think that that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But- that is a. I can imagine those caregivers. It might be really difficult to maybe get out and go to an in-person um, support group. Yeah. yeah, really. And even just finding a space in the home, you know, where their loved one is maybe not overhearing, or or um, just carving out forty-five minutes where they're not managing another caregiving responsibility, just to be on the phone and connect with other with other folks. So mm-hmm. it can be very meaningful um, to have that. And also the the people that we're inviting are in some very similar circumstances and they're all receiving or their loved one is receiving home-based primary care. So Mm -hmm. they can connect on a number of levels. Yeah. What are the demographic, the typical demographics of of the caregivers that you work with? Are they usually wives or Uh, children? It's, it's spouses. It's, it's, it's everything. It's, it could be children, nieces, nephews, friends. Partners, husbands, girlfriends, mm-hmm. ex-wives, ex-husbands, mm-hmm. um, sisters, siblings. I mean, it's hard to really say. I don't know that we have a good figure. Yeah. Um, I think it's sort of thinking about who's around. And, and many times in many families, there may be a primary caregiver who becomes ill or can't fulfill. And then you're sort of thinking about who's the next person that maybe could pick up that mantle from from them if they can't continue on. Or, or they sort of share the responsibility. One person... Maybe maybe there's one child who lives further away, but they can do they can order the groceries online or mm-hmm. manage the money that way, and another person can provide hands-on care. So yeah, it looks very. It, it can be very different. <laughs> there's no prototypical caregiver, I wouldn't say. 
What do you see um, or wish for the future of home-based primary care? I think it's, it is something that, as our demographics continue to change, that people, I think, will want for themselves. So it would be lovely for it to continue to expand in the private sector um, for people in, in similar circumstances and also to have mental health be integrated yeah. in, in those areas as well. I also think for we're just still sort of figuring out you know, in terms of the science behind this model of care, the science of this practice and across and that's across disciplines. So I think that there's a lot more we can we can understand about how do we do suicide? What does suicide prevention look like in this population of people who may be at risk or um, how does the psychologist really function best in this interdisciplinary team? Mm-hmm. So there's I think we're just really on the cusp of this <laughs> new burgeoning model, I think. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, um, one of the things that you discuss with your team are sort of ongoing quality improvement projects. And this made me wonder, you know, what are what are the quality indicators? that um, your team are looking at um, in terms of understanding the benefits of mm-hmm. home-based primary care? It's sort of, it can be complicated because sometimes we're, we're sort of proving the negative. So the goal, I think, from a systems point of view is, is to reduce the number of inpatient hospitalization days or, or emergency room visits because we can provide a similar level of care in the home and it doesn't need to escalate to a, a hospital stay necessarily. And so some of the um, health conditions that might drive an inpatient stay are things like heart failure or pneumonia. So we think about how are we doing around those high frequency hospitalization types of conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do get sort of formal feedback on that and we're always trying to be creative in how we can work closely with outpatient cardiologists or other, or other sorts of providers around those things. So I'm imagining there are graduate students, interns, fellows, generalist psychologists who are listening that might be interested in potentially working in home-based primary care in the future. I just know anecdotally, you know, looking at jobs over the last several years that those jobs for psychologists, at least within the VA, home-based primary care is definitely an area where they're recruiting more psychologists is what I've seen. What training advice would you offer them? Are there specific areas or topics that you would recommend these trainees or psychologists look into further? I think just being a sort of well-rounded geropsychologist is the most important thing. So being able to know the bigger picture systems issues, having spent time working in long-term care settings, so you know what that's like and what that would be like for a person if they were to end up there or in outpatient when they're younger and sort of thinking about what are the things that are may transpire to, you know, help them live a long life, but maybe need home-based primary care in the future. You don't need to have worked in home care to be successful in home-based primary care, although I do think that internships, postdocs, even some graduate training does seem to be including home care as a piece of training more and more, which Mm -hmm. is exciting. I think in terms of one's own personality, as I said, the flexibility is really the most important thing, but also having a good sense of yourself as a psychologist, because often you're you are on the road in the car listening to podcasts um, (laughs) by yourself and going into situations that you may that are novel and that you may be unfamiliar with. And so if you're someone who's very wedded to structure, this is not always the best choice. Um, And I think the other key piece is having a good sense of assessment, but also in terms of Having a good background in health psychology or, or behavioral medicine is very valuable, you know, not necessary, but really, really important and I think helpful in terms of building that competence in thinking about late life health issues and how psychologists can be useful. Mm-hmm. Psychologists can be useful. 
Well, I think that that's all I have for today. Thank you so much. This was, Thanks, this was really interesting. Thank you. It was great to be here. That's all for today's episode on the Jero Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and visit the website at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in hearing specific topics, please feel free to leave me a comment on the website. Follow me on Twitter at the Jero Podcast.